Hey, thanks for tuning into The Way, our Wednesday night service. This week, we'll hear a message from Pastor Andy Bowles. So you guys uh, are an extremely intelligent crowd, probably very well educated. And you remember going from the simple math in first, second, third grade, maybe inching into fourth grade, fifth grade. For some of you, you were well advanced, got it a whole lot sooner. Some of you, maybe not quite so advanced and got a little bit later. But you, you probably remember this little symbol that is used in math. You know, you get past the one plus one equals two, the one minus one equals zero, the one times one equals one, right? One divided by one equals, what does it equal? Five. Somebody said five. And so some of you need to go back and rehearse that. But once you get past all the, the addition, the subtraction, the multiplication, the division, and of course then you're going to get into some of the decimals. And, uh, but, but there comes a time in your education to where a teacher stands in front of class. I mean, this is the way they used to do it a long time ago. But, but a teacher would stand in front of class and they would draw on the chalkboard. What's the boards they have now? What are they called? What is, what is? Promethean boards can't even spell that, but <clears throat> I can spell chalkboard, but, but the teacher would stand up and, and, and she would say, okay, guys, I'm going to draw for you a greater than and a less than sign. And so the way, the way the teacher would do it to get our attention is how many of you guys have ever seen an alligator with its mouth open? And, and, you know, it would be real fun in elementary to have the teacher to become so animated to draw on the board that, that, that symbol that's just the greater than sign and then on the inside of it, draw teeth. On the outside of it, draw an alligator. Y'all probably, y'all don't like y'all had the same teacher I had. I mean, she was all into it, right? And she loved it. And she's teaching us that. And in my brain, all of a sudden, I see this alligator that is, that is greater than and eating all this stuff up in front of it. And, and it clicked for me. The greater than sign. On the opposite end of that, obviously, is the lesser than. And, and as you got a little bit more educated, there was a line under it. And it meant that there was something greater than or equal to or less than or equal to. And, and so, but when, when we learned that simple principle in school, it helped us educationally with, with our numbers be able to process in life. That's something not much like Algebra that you use in life nowadays, or at least for me, that greater than and less than symbol. When you think about life as a follower of Jesus, there are a lot of greater than versus less than things in life. I want to, before we get into James the Lesser, just kind of rehearse a couple of these things that are greater than versus the lesser than things in life. First of all, the master is greater than the material. Now, you, you, you really got to hear that, not just with the ears of your head, but with the ears of your heart. The master is greater than the material. How many of us live in such a hot pursuit over physical things, not just necessities, that's easy, but the wants in life to where all of a sudden our focus goes from Christ, the master, and on to things, the material, and all of a sudden, like Greg was talking about earlier, our car is in the ditch. We're wrecked somewhere spiritually. 
You know, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, you can't serve two masters. You'll love one, hate the other, cling to one, despise the other. You cannot serve God. And in the King James, it says mammon, but that translation just means material possessions or monetarily, uh, monetary goods. So, so, so in the Christian life and following Jesus, in, in the inclusion of all these things that, that are a greater than versus a lesser than thing, the master is greater than the material. And another thing is serving is greater than living selfishly. Serving. I love that Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 verse to where it says that we are to esteem others more than ourselves. It has the idea of putting you in front of me in life. It's completely okay, okay for me to take the back seat because my ultimate desire is to be like my master who said I didn't come to this place to be served, but instead to be one who serves and making sure that the greater than, less than signs in my life are pointed in the right direction because it can very easily be greater than sign pointed to me and lesser than side pointed to you or anybody else. And that needs to be swapped, right? I need to make sure that I'm living a life following Jesus, serving instead of desiring to be served or self-focused. Giving is greater, right, than gaining. Jesus taught Paul the apostle that, who later said that in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, when he says that, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. What is the greater in the two? Now, the fact of the matter is, who likes to get? Everybody likes to get. Everybody likes to receive, and there's nothing wrong with gaining or receiving. That's completely okay. When somebody gives you, you work with your hands, and you gain with the, uh, with the effort of your hands to, to get. But, but again, Jesus, and echoed through Paul the Apostle, reminds us that the greater than sign has to be on the side to where generosity always overwhelms our reception of anything good in life. We should be those among all the people of the world who are ready to give generously, not just giving monetarily. And you guys do that fantastically. We always encourage generous giving through tithes and offerings or, or giving through your time and giving through your ability or giving your attention to someone who needs the attention or whatever it might be, the generosity of your life in the giving because giving is much better than receiving. And the list could go on and on. So much more to talk about. Freedom versus bondage. Truth versus a lie and so forth. But tonight we're going to conclude our our study on James the Lesser, and we're going to dive off into the thought of less than doesn't mean you're not more than. Sometimes I think we might think just because less than James the Lesser, and we've already talked about James the Lesser as much as we can, remembering that there's very little bit known of him in the Gospels other than basic introductions, not a whole lot of examples, illustrations of some things he did or did not do, but we see in, in stature he was smaller in comparison to James the Greater, but even in and as we study James the Greater later, you'll see that there's a whole lot more information about him than there is James the Lesser, but there's just less information. And just because there's less information about James does not mean that he was not 
more in the sense of his involvement in a, as a follower of Jesus, one who obviously made a big impact for the gospel, with the gospel. If you remember the way he gave his life at the end of his life, in the conclusion of his life, he's on his knees praying for his per persecutors as he is thrust through with arrows and ultimately become, becomes a martyr for Christ. At the prophecy of Jesus, by the way, when Jesus, after he reassures Peter to feed his sheep, he looks to, to the disciples and said, there's one of you who will not taste death until I come. And he's talking about John, the revelator, the one that wrote the book of Revelation. But James is included and the other 10 who gave his life for the sake of the gospel. He was a martyr for Jesus. So obviously he was more than not more than to the world, definitely less than to the world, but he was more than in the eyes of Christ. Why? Because James the lesser found lesser of himself and more of Jesus. And when he found lesser of himself and more of Jesus, it actually made him more than, more than a conqueror in life. And we... <laughs> We've got, a, we've got another passage of scripture that we're going to turn to tonight, not necessarily that Romans chapter 8 verse 37 passage that we all know. And we actually had a series of messages on that one diving board verse, Romans 8 37 last year, which says, Nan, all these things, you're more than a conqueror through him who loved you. But we're going to look in 1 John tonight. If you've got your Bibles, flip over with me to 1 John in the New Testament, chapter 5. It'll be on the screen. If you don't, we're going to read the first five verses. Now, this is the writing of John the Apostle. Uh, the John, John is the, the one whom Jesus loved. He referred to himself as that in the Gospel of John. And then he wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the book of Revelation 5 out of the uh, twenty seven New Testament books. So in the New Testament, starts off with Matthew, go all the way. If you go to Revelations, uh, you've gone too far, go to the left and you'll find um, Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, 1st John. So 1st John chapter 2, beginning in, uh, excuse me, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, John writes and says this, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God, the promised one of God, is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begot loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we, we uh, excuse me, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? See, what, what James is writing, uh, excuse me, John is writing about here in these first five chapters, the all five chapters of 1 John, is a letter of, of helping the people of God be assured of the faith in Jesus. If you want a key that unlocks the truth of 1 John, you'll look in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 5, and you'll see where John writes and says, God has done all of this in your life so that you might know that you know that you 
are a child of God. So knowing is a key word in these five chapters. If you go back home, read this book, you'll see and highlight, underline the word K-N-O-W, you'll see the importance of God's desire that you know that you know him, that your relationship is secure in him because of him and not because of you. And so in this writing, John is very adamant about the knowing. A part of his explaining that is in the first few verses of this chapter, the first few verses of the chapter before, in chapter four, he gives somewhat of a litmus test. He says, I want you to make sure that you understand what qualifies you as being a child of God, a follower of Jesus, one who is born again. Remember, John's the one that recorded that in John chapter three, the gospel of John chapter three. And as he's explaining that in these first few verses that we've got of chapter five, he shares some birthmarks of the born again because he is writing to the saved but scared. I don't know if you've ever been there in life, but I've definitely been there in life to where I've been, I was saved. I, I knew I was saved, but man, I was scared about some things about my salvation because of certain things that was in my life. I was saved, but there was some question marks to where there should have been some exclamation points. And it wasn't because of anything Jesus had done or not done. It was everything to do with how I was living my life. And I was living my life in such a manner to where even though I was saved, I was not where I should have been doing what I should have been doing. Instead, sin had creeped into my life and began to steal away my joy. If you go back to the first chapter of 1 John and you'll see in verse four, he says, these things we're writing to you that your joy may be full. I'm writing this because there is a fullness of joy when there is a securedness in your salvation. And when you understand that. And so John, he, in chapter four, says you need to try the spirits. Make sure that what you're believing is spirit-led, spirit-led by the spirit of God. And, and then in, in chapter five, in these birthmarks, he says in, in verse one, he says, Whoso, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, in that day, there were a lot of people, even in Jesus' day and before Jesus came on scene, a lot of people who were saying that they were the anointed one of God, the Messiah, the one who had been prophesied of in the Old Testament, the one that Israel needed to trust to take the government of Israel and put it upon his shoulders. But they weren't. <laughs> they faltered. They, they failed. They didn't fulfill the prophecies and it was very evident that they were not the Christ. But, but John, when he's writing, of course, he starts off this letter in chapter one and it says, Jesus, this is the one to whom we've had fellowship, koinonia, partnership with in ministry. We have followed him. Our eyes have seen him. Our ears have heard him. Our hands have handled him. The word of life, living, capital W, logos from God. This one to whom we are very much assured of is the son of God. So he says, believe an act of faith to fully commit trust to a birthmark. When you are born again into the family of God, if you question, if you're saved but scared, then, then, then the way you can be secure and know is that there has been a moment in your life to where you have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was just listening to the radio today as I was driving and they had call in and the couple that was on the radio 
broadcast, they, they're real adamant about when they share their testimony, they talk about a specific time. I mean, even down to 7.32 p.m. on a Friday night, such and such date is when I gave my life to Jesus. And someone called in and said, I'm afraid that I don't, I don't know the exact time that I was saved. And all of a sudden, now I feel like after hearing y'all's testimony that I'm, I might not be saved because I don't know the time that I got saved. Let me say this. The time of day doesn't save you and your remembrance of an exact millisecond of a time of day doesn't save you. Jesus is the only one that saves you. And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ and he saves you radically, whether you realize what time it is or you don't know what time it is, you know who Jesus is and you know what Jesus has done for you. Therefore, you believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he is born of God. It's the one bar birthmark of being saved. Another birthmark of being saved is, he said, and everyone that loves him that begot loveth him also that is begotten of him. Oh, that's, that's kind of tricky, right? <laughs> well, what in the world is he talking about? He's talking about the Father and the Son. He's talking about God the Father who, who is in heaven sitting upon his throne. He's talking about God the Son to whom was born of a virgin Mary, conceived of the Holy Ghost, lived perfectly on this earth for 33 and a half years, went to the cross, died on the cross, was buried, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven after giving the commission to his followers to go into all the world and preach to the world repentance of sins, trusting in Jesus and following Jesus with their life. He says, do you love him? Do you love Jesus? Do, do you love God the Father? Inseparable. As a matter of fact, if you'll follow past verse 5, you'll see where he says these three bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, capital W, reference to Jesus and the Spirit. These three are one. And so he says, do you love him? It's kind of the ringing of truth that we find from the Old Testament when the Old Testament writer Moses would say to the children of Israel, you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. A birthmark of a follower of Jesus who is saved and secure and knowing this, not only do they have faith and believe, there's been a time in my life to where I trusted in Jesus and I believe I'm currently believing in Jesus, but I love God. I love God. The, another birthmark in the, the very next verse, he, he says, not only do you love the, the one who God has sent and, and God the Father, God the Son, but he says also, by this we know that we love the children of God, that we love one another. As a matter of fact, John says in this same letter, how can you say that you love God who you can't see and yet you hate your brother who you can see? You can't do that. You, you can't hate people. You, you can't hate people because of situations and circumstances. You can't hate people because of creed and color. You can't hate people because of nationality or cultural differences. You can't hate people. As a Christian, when you sign up to follow Jesus, then you take up the mantle of Jesus's love for all of humanity, which is to love everyone. Now, I think that our world today has equated love with acceptance. And so when we say we love the world, then we accept everything that the world is doing. Let me just say this. I do not approve nor do I accept what happened in Texas this past week that claimed the lives of 21 people. I do not. What I am burdened over is the one who took 21 lives this past week in the school shooting in Texas.
I'm burdened over this person's life so that they may come to know Jesus. Why? Because I love that individual, even though that individual had committed such a heinous crime. I love that person because I know their sin is no different than my sin. Consequences may be different. And obviously the consequence will be very great for that individual. But, but it is our desire to see people who are far from God come to Christ. And those who are in Christ our brothers and sisters experience the love of God that we can give to them through this agape type love that we've received by Jesus. Another birthmark. I believe and I'm believing. I love God. I love what he's done for me through Jesus. I love Christ. I love you. I love others in the world. And also it's my desire to keep God's commands and, and keep his commandments. To guard means is what it means to keep, to to watch out for, to look to for guidance. Who in the world has kept God's commandments? Uh, several of you guys, I've talked to you before about Ray Comfort and Ray Comfort's ministry, Living Waters. He has a pair ministry called Way of the Master with Kurt Cameron. Kurt Cameron years ago was on a show called Silver Spoons. How many of y'all are old enough to remember Silver Spoons? Yeah. And so... Um, Kurt Cameron always uses the commandments in his gospel presentation when sharing his faith to win people to Jesus. And so he says, have you been a good person? Do you think you're a good person? Most everybody thinks, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. You know, the reason you think you're a pretty good person is because your face is not on a picture inside of a post office, right? The, the reason you feel like you're a pretty good picture is uh, a person is because you're not running from the police at the moment, right? And so he asked the question, are you a good person? Do you want to take a test to see if you're a good person? Absolutely, I'll take a test to see if I'm a good person. Have you ever told a lie? Absolutely, I've told a lie. The ninth commandment is thou shalt not bear false witness. Have you ever looked at a person to lust after them? Absolutely guilty again. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've, if you've looked at a person, looked at, you've committed adultery in your heart, and one of the commandments is thou shalt not commit adultery. Have you taken anything that was not yours, even simple and small, picked up a penny on a property that did not belong to you, the penny didn't and the property didn't, take a pen from work and not return it, but leave it at home and use it at your own whim. It didn't belong to you, something that simple. Absolutely. I, well, according to your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, adulterer at heart, and you'll face God on the day of judgment. How do you stand? Woo, weight, right? That's some weight right there. And so what do we, what do, we do with that? How do we handle that? So do we, do we keep the commandments? As a Christian, we trust in the one who has kept the commandments for us. And in, in, in all reality, we are with Jesus in the keeping of the commandments. But it doesn't mean that we ignore the commandments. It is a great moral guide for us. And as a sailor would look to the stars for his navigation, we look to the commandments to help navigate us with a clean life with those that are around us. Because we know the commandments are given to us. The first four in re reflection to God and the five through ten reflection to human beings. How can I love God without obeying him? How can I love my neighbor without caring for them? And so he, another birthmark is not that you're perfect, but it's your desire to obey and follow the Lord. 
And then John says what he says in verses four and five, and that's where we really want to camp out for just a minute. He says, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. I was reading through the amplified version uh, just this morning, actually, about this passage of scripture. And so when I read through for whosoever is or whatsoever is born of God overcometh, it gives within its brackets a little bit more definition than just the word to overcome. It has the idea of being victorious, obviously, which it's going to say here in the latter part of this verse. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. But it gave the idea of conquering one who is a conqueror. I tell people this all the time. You're more than a conqueror. And usually when I say that, it excites people. It encourages people. You, hey guys, look at me real quick. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are more than a conqueror. But the question is, what have you conquered lately? Think about this. What has conquered you lately? You are a champion. You are to be more than a conqueror. It says, and this is the victory that overcometh the world. Victory is is the word where where Nike gets its name. It's actually the word Nike in the original language. It has the idea of being victorious. And and so, and this is the victory that overcometh even our faith. How important is our faith? Verse 5, he concludes this thought with a question. He says, who is he that overcometh the world? Who, who is he that is an overcomer, a conqueror over the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? It goes right back to where we began with whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ. How important is faith? By faith, we are more than conquerors. By faith in Christ, we have overcome so how can we be more than a conqueror while also living a lifestyle of less than as far as the world is concerned? Well, there's a couple of thoughts I want to share with you. First of all, to understand the measurement, the measurement of victory that you have. What's the measurement of victory for you? You have to you have to think about that a little bit deeper than the time I'm going to give you to think about that because that's a really really important question to ask yourself because there are a lot of people in this world who has an elevated idea that is well beyond their grasp about what it looks like to have a measurement of victory. You you might have to think of it like this: I just count the small wins as though they are bigger wins, right? Well, what is the measurement? How do you you measure that? How do you define one? Well, according to what we just read, faith. Faith should really be the measurement of our victory. The, The Bible teaches us in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, that anything done without faith is sin. Therefore, when there is an absence of faith, then there is the impute or the, the, the interest of sin in my life. The absence of faith means that there is a void in my life. Therefore, there is doubt being lived out and doubt is sin, right? And so, So the measurement of victory isn't so much the things that we sometimes think about in, well, I I beat that, I overcame that, that's subjected unto my power or authority, but instead, did I live out an act of faith in that conversation? 
when I was tempted to be hostile in that conversation or in that environment, when that temptation presented itself before me, did I act out in a measure of faith? And, and the good thing about this is, is it doesn't give us, as far as what John is writing here, of course, by Holy Spirit inspiration, any kind of defining factor of a measurement of faith. He says, believeth in verse one, believes in verse five, and faith in verse four. He doesn't say how much. I want to remind you what Luke says, Luke 17, six, to where Jesus says, if you have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, you might say unto this sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root and to be planted in the sea and it should obey you. <laughs> the, the smallness of faith is still so powerful. But, but even what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, when he's explaining the kingdom of God, he uses a mustard seed again as an illustration. And he talks about the mustard seed being the smallest of all seeds when it's planted in the ground, yields up one of the greatest of the, of the shrubs, if you want to put it that way, to where the birds come and flock and find refuge in its, in its leaves and its branches. So, so here Jesus says, if you have faith as the size of a mustard seed, how do you measure your victory? Are you expressing faith if it's just small, but not just to leave it small? Because the fact of the matter is you will face that again. If it's temptation, you'll face it again. If it's something else, you'll face that again. Guys, hey, look, I don't know if y'all recognize this or not, but we live on a loop. We live on a loop. This is why people like ADHD folks, a little bit more hyper than we have a hard time focusing. We get bored really easy. You mean the sun's going to come up again tomorrow? It's been coming up 46 years. Yeah, we're on a loop, guys. We're <laughs> We're on a loop and, and you're going you're gonna to experience things in cycles of temptation and it's going to come up again. And, and so how are, you, how are you having victory but, but by, by, the measure, by, by the expression of a measurement of faith? And so our faith shouldn't always be the size of a mustard seed. It should be planted in the fertile soil of God's truth so that it can come up and not just be a mustard seed, but it can be a mustard tree that is producing more seed. That's how your faith should be. That's how my faith should be. And that's how the measurement of our faith, our victory should be. And so if the Bible teaches us that faith is the victory that overcomes the world, so how can we increase or, or, or grow our faith? Well, first and foremost, how we grow faith is by the Bible, the word of God that says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, the Bible, we... Our faith is increased by experience. James chapter one, verse two through three says, my brother encountered all joy and you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this is the trying of your faith works patience. The trying of your faith is gonna work patience. 
Your faith is going to grow in that experience. The expression of faith, Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, that by faith we have come into this place of peace with God and then through faith and the working of faith, all of a sudden there is the conclusion of hope that makes us not ashamed. And then by example of others, our faith is increased. This is, this is awesome. When I see you follow Jesus, guess what it does to my faith? It's like a B12 shot, man. They doing it. I know them. They struggled paying their light bill last month too. They real. I've seen them walking. I've seen them falling. But, but the example there that is before us of, of those who are living it out is kind of like that Romans 1.17. Faith to faith. Generationally passing down the example of faith. So the measurement of victory is how we can be more than a conqueror while still being less than in this world. The next thought is the place of triumph is important for you to understand, for me to understand. The place of triumph. Let me ask you this question. When does a boxer win the fight? When the bell rings? When they're standing opposite of one another between the referee and he's holding one of them's hand right before one of them goes up. Is that when he wins the fight? If you're, if you're an athlete, your coach has probably told you this plenty of times before. You don't win the game or you don't win the fight at the conclusion of it. You win it in training. Has anybody ever been told that? I tell my basketball players that all the time. You're going you're gonna to win the game, but the way you're going to win the game is, is you're going to run. We don't call them suicides anymore. We call them fun runs. It's not fun for them. It is fun for me. But uh, it, that's when you're going to win the game. You're going to win the game when you're shooting 100 free throws at the end of practice. That's when you win the game. And for a boxer, they win the game when they're working their tail off, doing crunches and pull-ups, and they're worn out from it. And so that's when they win. But where is the place of triumph? The place of triumph is... Is holding the trophy up. It's congratulating one another at the end of the buzzer and the score is in your favor. It's standing on the opposite of the, the judge of the fight or the ref of the fight and your, your arm is lifted up. There is the place. This is what I'm afraid that we sometimes fail at is we want to skip everything else and just get to the place of triumph. We want to get to where our arm's being raised without going through the effort of getting there. <laughs> you see, to be more than a conqueror because of Christ's love, yes, because of faith, yes, and faith in Jesus through the new birth, but a living faith also to where this faith is preparing you for a place of triumph. You see, God is a God who operates his, his blessings on the, the level of stewardships. Right? That's why he says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, to him that overcometh, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even so as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. It's the idea, Jesus says, I have done this. I have empowered you, giving you the opportunity and ability to do as I have done. And as I have overcome and sit with my father in his throne, then you can overcome and sit with me in my throne. But he uses this word here. I will grant. 
I will grant you. <laughs> Quite literally, to show and deliver. He's saying, you see this, you do this, and you gain this. It's, I'm showing you how to do it. Now follow me in the doing of it. Because the ultimate desire for Jesus or of Jesus for you and me is to get us to the place to where he is. <laughs> More than just in the, in the measure of salvation, but, but even walking in this life. If it would not have been, he would not have told his disciples, when I go away, you will do more things than what I have done. You're going to do more miraculous things than even what I've done. And so the measurement of victory has to be a measurement of faith. A place of triumph is a place where Christ is, a place where Christ wants you to be, but it's got to be by following his example to be there. He has shown you the way. He has delivered you the opportunity. And now he says, see it, do it, and then gain. But then the last thing is how we, how we are more than a conqueror by being less than as James was. Then we see the little things that matter the most really do matter the most. It's, we live in a world today that says, hey, you know, big things, big things, big things, big things. And I say that a lot myself, and I'm not against it. But understand this, big things are built by the little things. There's a million things you didn't see before you saw the one thing you did see. That's just the way it is. I love what the prophet said. The prophet said, despise not humble beginnings. But even Jesus in Luke chapter 19, verse 17, and also in Matthew chapter 25, verse 21, he says, for those of you who desire to be rulers over much, then you need to be stewards in a faithful manner over the little or the small things. Man, how we want to cut in line. How many of you guys ever been somewhere? And you're waiting patiently your place. And all of a sudden, somebody cuts in front of you. What do you want to do? <laughs> Line starts back there. Yeah, that's what you want to do. Yeah, but you don't, because you're a Christian. You love Jesus and love others. But how does it make you feel? Yeah. You see, the thing, with, the thing with stewardship of Christ is you, you can't cut in line on this. You, you can't. You can't jump ahead. There is a process of stewardship to where Jesus gives you one talent and gives another man five talents. And he ain't hating on you. He just knows where you're at. And it's okay you got one talent. Do something with that one talent. Don't just go bury it, but invest it. Because if Jesus would have come back and saw the one investing the one talent and came back and got two talents, then he would have been rewarded with more talents. Why? Because he would have been a good, faithful servant over the little things, and he would have made him an authority over more things. You see, more than a conqueror is a whole lot more than just showing up. Showing up is definitely a part of it, but it's having a value for the small things and being a steward and faithfully over those small things. So the question, again, comes to this. As more than a conqueror who is less than in this world, what are you conquering? How do you measure whether or not you're conquering? It's by faith.
What is your direction is to be in a place of triumph as Christ is in a place of triumph. How do you make sure you're not missing it? You're paying attention to the little things because the little things add up.